Hello, party people, and welcome back for season two of the IBS Radar podcast. I'm Nikki. See, Ooh. two episodes in a row. I introduced myself. I'm doing pretty good. And I am joined girl. by Amy, my my wonderful, darling, soul sister of a podcast host. Um, we are excited for this episode today because we thought, what better way to start season two? What What better way to help you guys than to talk about normal, healthy digestion and normal, healthy gut function. And I was sharing with Amy before we started recording, kind of my thoughts on this is that conventional medicine is really, really good at helping us to identify the broken parts of ourselves. And it's really good at teaching us to look for the disease or the dysfunction or the the unwanted symptom or the boogeyman. And it, it's kind of like you can come at healing from the angle of identifying the disease or the disorder and getting rid of the disease. Or you can come at it from an angle of here's what optimum health looks like. How do I inch my way closer to optimal health? And I feel like that conversation is lacking in conventional medicine, certainly, but also to a certain degree in functional medicine, I think that we get hung mm. up on diagnosing the food sensitivities of the leaky gut and the candida and the SIBO almost as badly as conventional docs might. So, um, so yeah, I think that, you know, it's like, if you don't have a clear picture of where you're going, how are you going to get there? So that's, that's kind of the framework I'm going to share for this episode is that we're trying to show you where you want to go. So you have a clear picture of that. And you have an understanding of that. And then we'll talk about, you know, healthy digestion and healthy gut function. And then at every bit of the way, we'll also talk about here are some symptoms or here are some associated conditions that might come up if there's a breakdown in this location or this process. So that's right. my opening shtick. Do you have anything to add, Amy, my darling? Yeah, I, get, I think it's just going to be a great north to south look at gut function. And I, I feel that at times, sometimes people might not have super clear, like a super clear breakdown or like a super clear root cause, but focusing on like digestive capacity as a whole can be Mm -hmm. so productive. Like you're building resiliency and building, um, strengthening your digestion Mm -hmm. versus again, pinpointing one specific thing, like you're saying can be really helpful. I also think that one reason why digestion is so helpful or like to look at digestion from a north to south process can be so helpful is that, you know, a lot of people are jumping straight to the microbiome stuff. So they're going straight to, oh, I have a pathogen that was Mm -hmm. found in my stool test or I have, you know, SIBO or this or that. But like you really can't create an environment in the gut to even address those things unless digestion is running smoothly. Mm -hmm. Um, Just the environment that that creates, if you don't have healthy digestion, will make it really basically impossible to repair the microbiome. Yeah. And I I feel that it's like an order of operation problem Mm. where people tend to jump right towards the microbiome because it's sexy and like... It's all over Instagram. You know, what everyone talks about. Right, like the SIBO, like the the 
disease or again the dysfunction the label they can maybe test yeah right like they can say oh i have SIBO or i have you know giardia or i have some of these things that can be really serious and life altering and problematic but Mm -hmm. you know those things can't get better if digestion isn't on point and i try to tell people that too who want to jump straight to the antimicrobials or like the aggressive stuff right out the gate for the microbiome or want to do all this like microbiome manipulation Mm -hmm. when really if they just focused on getting their digestion up and running better it it first and foremost will help their microbiome but it will also um yeah it'll help it'll help their microbiome and make any other additional modulation that you do more impactful well, I think not only will it make it more effective, but also you probably won't need to work as much on it. Right. Um, and I, right. I like exactly. that you use the term order of operations. That brings back flashbacks to math classes that I had long since forgotten. Right. But, you know, it, it is, it's true. It's like, um, and I do something similar with students in FODMAP Freedom. It's like we start off talking about digestive capacity and stress and sleep and vagal tone and mm-hmm. gut brain axis and chewing your food and and some of these more foundational things long before we ever get to antimicrobials or histamine and mast cell stuff or um like hormone stuff because it's like theoretically if if you took like my class for example and you were like okay I know I have a histamine issue right I have like a mast cell histamine thing and if you just went in guns a on that module, you would maybe be tempted to take like five different things. You'd be like, oh, I've got to take vitamin C right. and quercetin and this probiotic she recommended and um, and some copper and riboflavin. Like I need to take all of these things. But you don't realize that things like sleep deprivation and stress chemistry and poor digestion are like stoking the fire of the histamine issue. So it's like you can go straight to histamine because it's sexy and cool and you could have genuine symptoms of histamine intolerance and you could go right there and you could take five different things for the histamine problem. And then you could backtrack potentially and take other stuff for the other problems, or you could go in the correct order and you could address the more foundational things first And most of what I see is that by the time people get to the histamine thing, even if they have a genuine honest-to-goodness histamine problem, they get to that point and then they're like, oh, I see I've already been treating this to some degree with everything else we've learned. Therefore, I can get away with taking maybe one or two antihistamine-type herbs instead of like five, right? right? So it's like it makes it more cost-effective and more effective and you just won't need the same excessive amount of supplementation and intervention if you do things in the correct order. So I totally agree with that. And again, it makes me chuckle and think of math class from years ago. Um, But yeah, I I think that this is a really important topic. And again, just to go back to framing it the right way, like, um, right. What is the saying? Like, if I tell you to not think about a pink elephant right now, what is the first thought that pops into your head? a pink elephant. So when we are treating the body saying, Oh, I don't want this disease. Where does your focus go? And where does your nervous system take you? And where does your like, 
where does your mindset go? Like, where does all of your energy go? It goes into the disease instead of going towards health. So I think like, you could call it manifestation. (laughs) I don't know what you want to call it. But I think that there's some element of that too, where it's like, if you're constantly focused on the disease or the dysfunction, uh, at some level, it's going to bring about more disease and more dysfunction. Versus if you could just focus on what does health look like? What does good optimal function look like and try to strive towards that? I think that that's a much more effective way to go. Um, And again, I think I think that this is a little bit more of like, admittedly, I will say in my work, and maybe in yours too, I think I still take a little bit more of the angle of like looking for the disease or the label or right. the test result or the whatever. Um, so it's not even that this is always how I talk with my patients, but it's like kind of having that at least a little bit in your framework, I think is helpful. Um, right. Well, again, I, th- I think it's, I view it almost as how can you build up your resiliency or strengthen mm-hmm things versus again focusing so much on like repairing yeah um a a broken part or something like that yeah well i think it's better for your mental health too to not focus on like i'm diseased i have a disease i have i'm broken i'm dysfunctional my gut hates me like all of that's really hard to cope with from a mental health standpoint um so I think right. also this is gentler on your mental health. Um, it probably leads to a little bit less like obsession and anxiety and like depression about the whole situation. Um, right. But yeah, you know, I think, I think that this, this will be helpful. And I like that you say resiliency because it made me mm. think of, did you see, I did an Instagram post a while back. It was one of those uh, carousel posts and it was the cliff metaphor and it was yeah. about SIBO root causes. So it's like, you can focus on like identifying the cliff or you can focus on how to get to the other side and how to get as far away from the cliff edge as humanly possible. But again, like if you don't know where you're going, if you don't know what direction to turn your car, you could just zoom right over the cliff edge again. But if you know, Oh, the exact direction I need to go to get from the example I used was the edge of the grand Canyon versus Tucson, Arizona if you're at the Grand Canyon and you want to get to Tucson, you need to know like, okay, Tucson is generally speaking directly south of the Grand Canyon. So I want to point my compass. I want to point my car south and that's the direction I'm going. But again, it's like you have to have an understanding of what Tucson looks like and where it is if you ever want to get there. If you just wander aimlessly in the desert, that's just not going to be a good situation. Right. Um, Right. But that being said, without further ado, I'll, I'll frame this. I, if I may, can I steal the first step in the process? Sure. And then I'll, Is and this going to be a it. big surprise? Because I, I feel like maybe. I, well, this one, okay. <laughs> this one, I think gets forgotten a lot. I think that you would know this, but I want to make sure it gets mm-hmm. said before the other ones. But I think the very first stage or the very first step in the process is it has nothing to do with your with your stomach or your mm-hmm. mouth or chewing it's just like the 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 part of the experience leading up to putting food in your mouth so right. things like, the like sensory the sensory experience yeah like just becoming hungry 
Right. Like noticing, oh, hey, I'm hungry is one of the first ones or like kind of taking note of, oh, it's almost time to eat. It's, you know, it's five o'clock and we eat at 530 or, um, you know, seeing the food, smelling the food, preparing the food, maybe even tasting mm-hmm. a little bit of it as you cook, like all of this kind of preparation before the food even touches your lips is arguably the first stage of digestion because all of that sensory experience is telling your nervous system, Hey, food is going to come soon. And then your Mm -hmm. nervous system can tell your gut, Hey, BTW, I'm going to need you to work soon. And there's food coming down the pipe soon. And then the gut kind of like has a little bit of time to adjust to that idea and go, Oh, okay. I guess we should prepare some digestive juices then. Or, Oh, I guess we should prepare to do our job then. Right. So it's like you're you're giving one guy a heads up so he can give the other guy a heads up in a weird way. Um, Right. Right. And true like north to south fashion. It's like our brain is is like the the first step. And I do think this is something that was really highlighted to me, at least when we talked to Thomas, because he talked a lot about Mm. this. I don't know if you remember it, like how important that part is and how we've sort of neglected it as a culture like we want fast convenient things so Mm -hmm. like the the prep time that we're cooking the food the amount of time we're really enjoying the food is all sped up Mm. and again it makes me wonder too like um you know some of my clients who like skip or don't skip but like don't have a lunch break Mm. And they're just like pulling out food, trying to eat it as fast as you can. And, yeah. and again, like I've been guilty of at times if I'm in a hurry or something to to do that. But I think for the we've most part, that. right, we've all done. We've all like engulfed food before without giving us a true sensory experience. Mm-hmm. But I think for the most part, like if you're someone that's consistently like rushing through meals, not taking a lunch break. Um, again, not not that you have to have like insanely elaborate meals, but just trying to spend a little bit of time prepping a meal, making it look attractive, smelling it. Like the more you can kind of enjoy the sensory experience of the mm-hmm. food, the better. Um, but yeah. I think really probably the biggest problem I see with my clients is like failing to take time to eat or like have a lunch break to where they can really experience the food from a sensory standpoint versus just like inhaling it. Yeah. I I think breakfast and lunch are probably the two biggest that people do this with. Because again, you're like, you're in a rush to get out of the house in the morning or you're in a rush to get back to work or your boss is breathing fire down your neck or whatever. Um, heck I was, I just had a parent teacher conference last night with my daughter's teacher and we got chit chatting for some reason about lunch. And she said that she has 20 minutes for lunch. And I was like, I was like, Oh, I hope you have enough time to chew your food adequately. And she laughed. (laughs) She just laughed. She was like, no, no, I just get a soup and I chug (laughs) it and that's it. I was like, Oh, like, okay. Like, I really want to help you, but we're here to talk about my kid, not my work. Um, right. But yeah, like, I, I don't know, I think that and there are some professions that are wicked guilty of this. I think right. teachers, teachers and nurses have it the hardest. And honestly, I don't even know if I have a solution. Because sub- like, 
with a school day, your day right. is totally structured. The students are going to come back to the classroom at this time. Like, right. it's not like you can go to the principal and say, hey, can I have an hour for lunch? Like, they're just going to laugh at you and say, no, get out of here. Um, right. For nurses, I would assume it might be the same way. Like, you get just a, the X amount of time, and that's what you have to deal with. But I think, um, I think, you know, the teacher's idea of having like a soup or something that's easy to eat um, or requires a little bit less chewing like that, I thought was a good idea. Um, I think also just having the food with you, like having it pre-prepared with you is going to take right. much less time than like, like with a nurse, I, I'm picturing like a nurse that works in the ER or the OR or something. And it's like, all right, well, if you bring lunch with you, you can go to the break room and try to find a place to hide so people don't bug you. And then you can take your 20 minutes right. versus if you only have 20 minutes and you have to go down to the hospital cafeteria, buy the wait in line, buy the food, then eat the food, then go all the way back up to your floor for work that you're giving yourself even less time to eat your food. Right. So this, this could be a thing for like, um, bringing your food with you as much as possible and preparing it ahead of time and like batch cooking. Um, right. But yeah, some of these, like there's no easy solution because people have wackadoo schedules and it's just really, really difficult sometimes to carve out the time. But I think even if you could give yourself a little bit of time, that's still better than nothing. I will say too, like right. when you're eating, not being distracted, like, I can't right. tell you how many patients right. I've had where we get talking about this and they're like, oh, I'm eating with one hand and I'm like typing an email. You can't see my hand. I'm doing this. Right. I'm typing an email and reading emails with my other hand. And I'm like, that has right. to stop immediately. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Like, give yourself the gift of five or 10 minutes without looking at your email. Like, watch a funny YouTube video or just look out the window or something, anything else, do anything right. other than email. And I think that right. would be great for you. So that's another one I see quite a lot is just people are distracted. Um, I'll throw out another one too. And it doesn't have to be all the time. It could be genuine, but even just verbally saying that the food smells good or looks good, or when you right. start when you start eating it, verbally acknowledging like, oh, this is really good. Like, a gratitude is great for vagal tone, right? So, and we're kind of like starting to go into the second phase here now in the mouth. But like, gratitude is great for the vagus nerve, first of all. Um, but also, I don't know. Like, I think sometimes speaking things out loud can make it more real for the body, and. Mm again, like the whole goal of mindful or like this intuitive eating, mindful eating kind of stuff is to like actually experience your food, but slowing down and taking the time to observe out loud, like, Oh, this is really good. Might be therapeutic. I think at times. Um, right. And like, you know, we, so we went on a beach trip on the weekend and my mom, uh, packed like a dinner. So we ate in the car. I, I ate while I was driving a car down the highway. So I, I did the exact right. opposite of what we're talking about right now. The food was right. all cold. It was at a cooler. My mom just busted it out and handed it out to people when we were driving. And I did the exact opposite. But I will say, I took my time eating it. And it was on a stretch of the journey that like I wasn't stressed. There wasn't like bad traffic or anything. Um, and 
you know, I did, you know, I, I said out loud a couple of times to my mom, I'm like, Oh, like, this is really great. Like, thanks for bringing this. Cause like, you know, she brought like peaches and carrots and cucumbers and like these chicken skewer things that she got at Costco. And like, she brought a lot of really good, healthy stuff, but also stuff that you could eat with your hands while driving or while you're in a vehicle. So a couple of times, I think I complimented her and like, oh, these were really good ideas to this was a great idea to bring this. And wow, this was really good. And like, oh, I forgot these chicken skewer things are really tasty. And I don't know, like, I think that that was probably negating some of the bad that I was doing driving down the highway at 70 miles an hour cramming a chicken kebab in my mouth. So I don't know, I think that was helpful. Yeah, well, and I again, I, I think you're right, there are certain situations that just aren't conducive to having like a long lunch break, or I know now that I have a baby, if like Armand's watching the baby and she's freaking out or needs to be fed or something, I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, like, uh, like the the mom guilt coming in while I'm yeah. shoving food in my mouth is probably not good either. <laughs> probably a double whammy. But yeah, I mean, I think that that the more you can try to experience the meal instead of just checking a box of like, yeah. okay, I got to eat lunch, check a box. Like the more it becomes a little bit of an enjoyable experience, whether it's just kind of having some time to take a break. I remember the, a funny story. My sister used to have this boss um, who was, it was a bit annoying to her where she's a dentist. And so he would want to like have her, have his team of other dentists like read articles and stuff and then like talk about leadership at lunch you know like like have a meeting at lunch to like what does it mean to be a leader and all this stuff like and so my sister (laughs) yeah my sister was like you know I just want to enjoy my freaking lunch without having to like talk to my boss and And like be put on the spot about what like a leader is instead of like just having you know five minutes she's a pediatric dentist too so like you know she's with kids sometimes like kids that have kind of um that are a little bit harder to manage whether they're freaked out of the dentist it's always the people that you wouldn't think are freaked out of the dentist too which is funny Hmm. like sometimes the like you know the the people you would think would be freaked out aren't. And then like, you know, the 14 year old boy who you'd think Mm -hmm. might be pretty good is like super freaked out. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's funny, but yeah, she, you know, it's hard to, to manage kids all day and then to not have like that break. Same thing with probably teachers too. Yeah. Well, and honestly, just, I don't know. I think that most work, like it's reasonable to want a genuine break in the middle of the day for a little bit. And you know, it's funny because like, on the surface, you could see that and be like, wow, what a proactive, involved, good boss. Like right, teaching right. leadership skills to the employees. Like well, on that's, the surface I think, how level. The, all right. That's how the boss, want, I think, wanted to be perceived. But yeah. like he was a little bit weird and kind of egomaniacal. And I don't know. He was well, a little bit. And again, like from our perspective, I would absolutely have conniption fit because I like I just want to eat my lunch I don't want to right, work exactly, while I'm on exactly. my break that's the whole point of a break is that I'm right, not working right. so no um yeah that that would drive me bonkers um but yeah that's a really good example of what not to do when you're eating your lunch again if you can right. just actually experience your food um and enjoy it and 
Ed, you touched on something that's really important. And honestly, I think this might be one of the most foundational things. Um, your nervous system has the rest and digest and the fight or flight, fight, flight, freeze, appease side, right? right. For this, this unconscious part of your nervous system. Uh, if you are in fight, flight, freeze, appease mode, you can't get into rest and digest mode. Like they, right. they are opposites and you only really get to experience one at a time. Um, but I think just going back to like some of our Vegas nerve episodes and some episodes with like Jennifer Franklin, um, if you want to improve vagal tone and if you want to improve like digestive function, really at the fundamental level, your vagus nerve needs to feel happy and safe and mm. connected. And like, mm. you know, you could even throw in gratitude, but like all of these happy, feel good kind of neurochemicals and experiences. But I think at the end of the day, the vagus nerve just needs to know that you are safe enough that you're allowed to eat. Right. right? Cause right. like if you, to use the overused expression, if you are running away from a tiger, you probably shouldn't be running by the apple tree, grabbing an apple and shoving it in your face while you're running for your life. <laughs> right. right. Like that would be stupid. Right. So similarly, if there are situations in your work or your home life or your life that make you feel unsafe or unloved or like really insecure or vulnerable, that is going to be directly counterintuitive or counter uh, productive to your vagal tone. And like, I know, for example, a guy that I worked with, I really think this is a big part of it for him, but um, he lives with a loved one who is incredibly difficult and incredibly, frankly, toxic sounding, but he feels obligated to help this family member and stick by their side. And, you know, we talked about, it. I was like, dude, I don't think you have a snowball's chance in hell of getting into Vegas nerve territory and rest and digest. And he described this. He's, he was saying that he, prepared his meal and he scarfed his meal as quickly as humanly possible just so that he could leave and like get away from this family member and go back up to his room. And it's like that your nervous system does not think you are safe enough to be eating. And then when you put food in your stomach anyway, it's freaking out because it thinks it's the equivalent right. of you're running away from a woolly mammoth and your life is in danger, and then you're the dum-dum who takes an apple off the tree and shoves the apple in your face and eats it while you're running away from the woolly mammoth. Like, it doesn't make sense on a physiological level. Um, but again, like, kind of dealing with that and trying to figure out, like, navigating that relationship and how to maybe part ways with that toxic family member. I mean, I don't know. That's that's a really tough part of, of the journey, and I don't know if he's going to do it, but... Um, I think at the fundamental level, you know, he's he's gotten all these different diagnoses and these different procedures, and he's spent a crap ton of money on this this journey. And I think at the end of the day, it just boils down to his nervous system does not think he's safe enough to eat. Right. That well, and it, again, it, like, and even when you when you move kind of on the other side of the coin, it's like, what can you do to help your nervous system feel safe to eat? One thing is to connect. Um, I think is another really good 
thing. So like if you can eat with a loved one or eat with a friend, like sometimes those can be that can be another helpful thing to try to do if you can. Or again, like there's other things to do, like maybe do a gratitude practice before you eat or do some of the things we've suggested. But deep belly breathing. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I do think eating with someone is often helpful as long as 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 long as they're not toxic. Right. As long as they're not yeah. toxic. Like the other side of the coin there is that usually if you're eating with a loved one, that's going to be very calming to the nervous system. Yeah. And kind of it helps slow you down too, I've I've noticed. Yeah. Like if you're kind of eating by yourself and don't aren't talking to someone, mm-hmm. um, it speeds up the process a little bit more and sometimes having someone there can slow it down. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think an analogy I'll use for that that situation I described that might help too is like, um, if you were eating chunks of lead every day, if you just, if you had like lead paint, you were like, Ooh, it's my favorite. You were like peeling it off and eating it like potato chips off the wall every day. Right. There's not going to be a lot of utility in me telling you, Oh, take some milk thistle. Right. Cause it's like, like the 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 thing in that scenario, and again, like so to tell this person, oh, do some belly breathing or gratitude, um, like it might help him, but also when you're fighting that big of an uphill battle against that degree of stress on the body, honestly, like I'm still firmly in the belief that he needs to figure out a way to part ways with that family member and not be around them all the time. And it's like, you know, in the situation I described, it's like, you've got to stop eating the damn paint chips first. And then we could talk about the milk thistle to protect your liver. But if you're actively consuming lead every day, there's not a whole lot of use giving you milk thistle. So, you know, just to, to throw that out there. But, um, Oftentimes, though, the lead chips that we're eating are the hardest things to tackle, and people will oftentimes avoid them at all costs and deny them at all costs. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. like, it's they it's so much easier in a weird way to deny that that's the problem and try to search for another solution rather than, like, ripping off the Band-Aid and dealing with, like, a toxic relationship, for example. Um, but anyway, no, I don't want to get away from the topic of the episode. Um, so to go, to go back to that, sorry about the little, uh, the little tangent there. Uh, you want to, you want to take us through the mouth's journey or the mouth's part of all of this, the talkie talk. Well, mouthy mouth. Yeah. I mean, the talkie talk, the mouthy mouth. (laughs) Thank you. I wanted to see what you would do with that. Um, things just got weird. It did. Um, it did. I actually listened to a podcast that says, that's called This Might Get Weird. Um, I like the title. But yeah, things got That's a little what we weird. we should have called this. We shouldn't have called it the IBS Freedom Podcast. It should have been called, like, This is Weird with Nikki and Amy. Right, right. <laughs> so, but I think in terms of the mouth, there's definitely some mechanical breakdown that happens when you're chewing. And then there's also some some chemical digestion as well mm-hmm. with, like, the saliva. There are mm-hmm. certain enzymes in the saliva that can help initiate digestion as well so there's sort of this dual action of 
the saliva helping to break down certain yeah. things and then also the the act of chewing helps to mechanically break things down a lot um Can so I that's also- again like I'm sorry. Welcome back to season two, where I perpetually interrupt Amy. <laughs> I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. Yes. What? What Can is I it? What is one it? Thing? Yes. I get to say one of the worst words in the human language or the English language. Also, the saliva lubricates everything. Does it, does it lubricate? Lube, like it just it's it's right up there with like moist. I know a lot of people hate the word moist. My oh God hates the word yeah. puberty. Like with a deep. Really? Yes, she hates the word puberty. She thinks it's so gross. But anyway, um, yeah, keep in mind too, like the moisture from the saliva mixing with the food lubricates it so that it can slide down into the gullet easier. Okay, you go, you go back. I didn't mean to steal your moment. I just wanted to share that. Well, and again, like I think that there's there's the mechanical aspect of the chewing that helps break down the food to make it easier to digest. There's the saliva that has lubrication effects and chemical type effects. But then even just the act of chewing, which we've mentioned earlier, activates the nervous system and tells the nervous system, hey, food's coming down the way. We need to kind of start getting digestion up and running. Mm -hmm. So that's a really key aspect because if you're not chewing enough, you're not going to activate the nervous system to release things downstream that are really important. So again, that's why everything gets kind of thrown off if you're not chewing enough because it does sort of hinder all of digestion downstream. I also think a couple other things of note is, you know, the microbiome in the mouth also can Mm. play a role Mm -hmm. in the microbiome downstream. So doing things oral health wise to keep that healthy um, can be really important. And even like certain things, which I know we talked about with Sarah Hornsby, the myofunctional therapist, Mm -hmm. You know, if you're mouth breathing a lot, um, even at night or during the day, that does affect saliva production. Like it makes your mouth dry. Yeah. Um, which affects the microbiome, which affects, you know, digestion. Um, but, you know, with that, like there can be some breakdowns there that you could work on if there's like any more severe of an issue, like a myofunctional mm-hmm. issue with like a tongue thrust swallow pattern, which could mm-hmm. be impacting digestion in different ways. Like if your tongue posture is weird, which I know sounds really strange, but if your tongue is not sitting on the roof of your mouth and usually if you're mouth breathing a little bit, even if you're like, I don't think I mouth breathe and you're breathing through your mouth a little bit. Um, sometimes the tongue posture isn't great. Um, and that can affect vagal tone. I know we talked mm-hmm. about that that with her. Like there's a potential yeah. for that to affect the nervous system and you could be swallowing more air, which can make digestion more yeah. painful too. Like you're swallowing more air, which makes you more bloated and things like that. But yeah, yeah I mean, I think from like a general standpoint, doing enough chewing is mm-hmm. the most critical piece from the mouth part. But then, you know, from a breakdown standpoint, I usually think like dental issues or myofunctional issues could be at play um, that may hinder chewing or swallowing in certain ways that could impact digestion downstream or lead to a little bit more symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll add, um, I'll add a couple of things is, so like from a neurological perspective, if you think of the sensory stimuli that we 
we get from the outside world that we send back to our brain. We have sight. So we already talked about like seeing the food and maybe verbally acknowledging, ooh, that looks good. We've got hearing. So maybe you could hear the sizzle of, of the, you know, the pan or something or like hearing, ooh, this looks good. Uh, we have uh, touch. So like we usually think of touch with something we would touch with our hand or our elbow or our leg, mm. but keep in mind that your tongue can pick that up too. So mm. uh, even just observing like, oh, the texture of this is really creamy or really crunchy or really dry mm. or really moist or really like lumpy, like even something like that. Um, like, yes, experience the taste, which is another one of the five senses. So taste, observing, oh, right. this is sweet, salty, bitter, etc. cetera. Right. Um, umami, like you can kind of contemplate the flavors a little bit, contemplate the texture and like the touch, like the sensory experience right. of the food. Um, and yeah, and chewing ends up being a big part of it. But that I also want to share I think people could take it too far. And <laughs> I, I blame the internet for this because people oftentimes want free advice that can just be a blanket statement for everybody. And hell, that's why we're making this podcast so that we can give free advice to people and help people. However, um, keep in mind, there's no one size fits all and nothing is a blanket statement. So I know, for example, um, I, I, tell students in FODMAP Freedom to chew their food adequately. And we talk about it a lot in uh, in the third Q&A. However, I remember a couple of sessions ago, we had a student and she was already pretty health conscious and like had been on this journey for a while. And she said, uh, yes, well, I've been chewing my food thoroughly for years. I chew every bite until it's a disgusting, flavorless paste. And I no longer enjoy eating because oh it's gross, but I do it anyway. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Right, okay, right, so, right. so that's a problem because you just said you don't like eating anymore and it's a bland flavorless paste. There is no part of your nervous system that is enjoying this experience anymore right. and that is not good for vagal tone. So I was like, all right, everybody else on this Q&A right now, your job is to chew more. For you specifically, your job is to chew less. I hereby forbid you from chewing any bite of food more than 10 times. Like, <laughs> oh you, you need to do the opposite. And it's like, because again, you see these well-intentioned blanket statements on Instagram and YouTube and podcasts where people you know, in our fields will say, you have to chew every bite of food 30 times. By the way, have they ever tried that? Do you know how hard that is? It's... It, it is utterly impossible other than like a steak. I, right. You can't convince me that you could chew every single bite of food that comes into your mouth 30 times. You won't. You have a swallow reflex that will kick in first. But, right. you know, like there's these blanket statements, but just chew it a reasonable amount. Chew it so that it maybe has a bit less flavor. It's mostly homogenized and it's mostly mushy. And just picture right. it this way. Your stomach doesn't have teeth. So don't send it something that you would need teeth to break down. That's the way you could right. think of it. Use your teeth in your skull where you got them and then swallow the food, not the other way around. Um, and then that was a tangent, but I'll throw out another type of um, sensory stimuli we have is proprioception, which is 
the sense of where your body parts are in space. And a lot Mm -hmm. of that comes from joints. So like I, even with my eyes closed, I can tell you right now that this elbow is fully flexed and now it's fully extended and now it's fully flexed. And I don't need my eyes to tell me that I can feel where that body part is in space. And you get some proprioception from the movement of your jaw and the movement of your tongue and like how it's maneuvering the food around. So again, like we're getting a couple of different sensory experiences when we do eat, we've got taste, which everyone talks about. We also have the texture kind of sensory component. We've got the smells that are highly associated with taste and that kind of rolls into one. Uh, Maybe we got the visual seeing the food come in before we took a bite. And we've got the proprioception from like us understanding where our tongue and where our jaw is in space. So chewing and just taking the time to keep your food in your mouth for a little while longer is a pretty big sensory experience for your nervous system. And that I think is a big part of why it's priming the vagus nerve and the gut brain axis. So for what's worth a little nerdy neurological moment there. Yeah, I like the I feel like I was guilty about like, oh, chew your food this amount of times early on in my my career. But, you know, I think that you're right. It's like a pump the brakes kind of moment. Like, oh, you don't want to like be doing that all the time. Like maybe if you did it as an exercise too of like, how much do I chew? You could kind of maybe Mm -hmm. do something like that very briefly. But as a general rule of thumb, I think you're right. Like pump the brakes, Um, pump the brakes on that. I've kind of done some loose assessments on my own. And I feel like what feels doable and comfortable and adequate and not gross for me is like for really tough meat, like red meat, like a steak or something. I feel like somewhere in the ballpark of 25 to 30 chews is doable for that. You could maybe get away with doing a little bit less, but probably most people should aim for 25 to 30 chews. As a side note, did I ever tell you why I became a vegetarian when I was 11? It's too hard to chew meat. Yes, I complained that meat was too hard to chew. You want to talk about like how lazy can you get? But ever since I was a like two-year-old or three-year-old, my parents wrote in my baby book that I complained that meat was too hard to chew. <laughs> so oh I get it, man. I, I get that this is hard work, but you got to do it. If, if you're going to eat the stuff, you got to do it. Um, but then I feel like for, for a meat that's less tough, like maybe chicken, I've tried chewing it 30 times. It's damn near impossible. Again, your right. swallow reflex kicks in before you get there. So I feel like right. closer to like 20 chews is reasonable. Right. Um, right. Then you That's get kind into of what like, I... good. Oh, I was just going to say like fruits and vegetables on, like... and stuff is probably a little bit lower than that still. Yeah. And I also think just like the size of the bite might matter. Like if mm-hmm. you're someone that's taking huge bites, like that yeah. might be a different thing. So again, like sometimes number of bites isn't the best to go off of. And I do think like if you're using it as just a general barometer, like to understand, oh, like where am I at? Mm-hmm. because I think eventually like I remember I did like where I would pay attention to how much I chewed at the beginning but then I just kind of naturally started chewing more like over yeah. time without yeah. thinking about it like I think it habitually becomes easier I mean there's definitely moments where you can kind of where I catch myself and I'm like whoa I need to chew more I'm eating too fast like yeah but I think it's it could be relatively I mean the nice thing about chewing is I feel like it can be something that 
becomes relatively habitual pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like something you have to be focusing on really intensely, or at least I think for most people, it's not something they need to be focusing on too much for a so- long period of time. It's kind of like, you know, if you do it for like a, a, a couple of weeks, it's like almost like you just habitually chew more. I don't know. That's at yeah. least what I experienced. I think so. Well, and I think, again, if you give yourself adequate time to eat <laughs> yeah. your meal, bless you. Right. If you give yourself adequate time to consume the meal, I think that naturally you're going to start filling the time a bit more. I think right. that our our societal tendency to underchew largely comes from rushing right. all the time. Right. Um, or being right. distracted and having like social media or emails or something. So it's like, if you can just carve out a chunk of time dedicated to eating and not be distracted by anything else and really just like observe the food, enjoy your food, enjoy your little break, and then resume your work day. I think that that'll go a long, long way for most people. And most people probably don't need to count their chews. Honestly, I will say right. if you're counting your chews every time you eat, that in and of itself is like a bit disordered right, and right. not a great thing to do. Like that's kind of indicative of some kind of like obsessive disordered eating almost kind of tendencies that I think right. could be worthy of addressing in their own respect. Um, right. Right. But all right. In true Amy and Nikki fashion, I will just point out, <laughs> we hypothesized that we could keep season two just a little bit more concise. And so far we're doing a really bad job of that. So I just want to bring to your attention that you, my friend need to be out of here in 25 minutes so we need to speed this up just a little bit. Um, well, let's, well do, do, could we do two parts? We could. Well, yeah. So we could talk about the stomach as the food enters the stomach next. And then we could do like small bowel and colon next episode. Maybe that would be a good way to go. Yeah. I, yeah, think I, just, that I might... want to be mindful. Right. Time. I think, I think that might be a good idea. Um, okay, and that way we don't have to rush because right. you people Let's know just we're do incapable two, of that anyway. A, a north to south, part one, part two. I think we. Okay. I think we can. Um, we can do the two parts. We're we are. Look at us, evolving, in real time, evolving. for That's everybody right. to to hear. That's right. And if they didn't <laughs> already know that these episodes are unscripted and they're just the real raw Amy and Nikki, right? <laughs> talking on the fly, they know now well, as we is spur the moment decide to make it a two-parter well and it cracks me up because we're like we're gonna do outlines this time maybe we still can but i feel like we we have yet to do an outline it's episode two first of all rude that's true but sorry but, sorry 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 i will say i will say okay so let me quick tangent then we'll get to the stomach people so i observed that in our first hundred episodes, A, we were using our microphones wrong. So there's that. Um, Number two, I observed that there were many times where we would talk about an affliction, say leaky gut, and we would, we would get going with the episode. And then like 50 minutes into the episode, I would be like, oh, should we tell the people what leaky gut is? And then we would actually like define 
the thing. So I was suggesting for the episodes where we're talking about a specific condition or a specific diagnosis, we might just want to lead in with what is it and what are the symptoms of it. And that Mm -hmm. way, it'll help the listeners understand like, do I need to listen to this? Or can I skip it? So that is um, that lies ahead, people I still stand by we're going to do outlines, or at least stick with a general kind of rough outline for some of these upcoming episodes. Uh, But getting but getting back to the digestion. So um, so obviously, you would swallow the food and it would move down the esophagus into the stomach. Um, for one, you should have a sphincter at the bottom of your esophagus that's basically separating your esophagus from your stomach. And that lower esophageal sphincter, the LES, should open up when it feels food coming in. And then it should close up. Because you don't want the acidic contents of the stomach to come back up into the esophagus. That's Mm. not the goal here. Um, I think that lower esophageal sphincter dysfunction is very common, particularly amongst people with GERD. Um, And I think this is an area that we need more research in. Because really, there's not a ton... Like it's observed in a lot of research, but there's not a ton known about how to treat it. Um, I've definitely seen papers. Right. I, I've seen papers that talk about uh, deep breathing exercises, particularly like diaphragmatic, like belly breathing, being really helpful for this because that sphincter is like right at the level of the diaphragm, basically. So if mm-hmm. you could train the diaphragm and breathe a bit differently or breathe deeper, you can kind of start to train that LES. Um, The other thing that I've seen in research at least once is melatonin helping to tone Mm, that sphincter. Now, I will say I've tried using melatonin for this purpose with people with GERD for many years, and I have yet to see a single person think that it profoundly helped their GERD. I don't know Mm. if I'm using too low of a dose or what it is, but I haven't seen it be helpful. That being said, melatonin is pretty cheap and fairly safe and fairly well tolerated, especially at the lower doses. So you could always try it. And if it doesn't work, oh, well, you're out like five, 10 bucks. It's not a terribly expensive supplement. Um, But other than deep breathing and melatonin, I don't think we know a ton about how to help the LES and improve its tone. But I will throw out there it appears, not surprisingly, that the LES is innervated by the vagus nerve. So if we can, if we can help the vagus nerve function better and get into rest and digest and do all the stuff that we just talked about in the last half hour, whatever it's been, I do think that that will help the sphincter work better. Um, Mm. But as far as like magic supplements and magic herbs and magic teas that you could consume right now and have it feel better today, I don't know if we have a good understanding of that. Um, Theoretically, too, like anything that's astringent that kind of like makes the tissues pucker might be helpful here, too. So Mm -hmm. like maybe even lemon juice or vinegar or um, like raspberry leaf tea or something something like that that's got some astringency to it might be helpful but i don't know i haven't played with that clinically yet um and i know like the high histamine foods can be problematic for some people's gerd so the thought of vinegar or lemon juice might make some people with gerd cringe Um, but you know you it's worth a consideration at least but um but yeah that's the little the little story of the les 
Yeah. Well, and I think even like you were saying that the deep breathing like might affect the diaphragm, but we definitely know it probably affects the vagus nerve too, um, to where that, that could also be why it's helpful. And I, I think the thing that, that is interesting is, you know, the conventional model is, okay, if you have reflex, you just have too much stomach acid. Like there's no real discussion. And sometimes people will take out foods that might relax the sphincter. So like sometimes that can Mm. be helpful too. So there's certain foods that, that generally can kind of relax that a bit. So we're talking things like mints, mint stuff, Mm -hmm. um, chocolate, uh, tomato, um, there's some other ones too. I'm drawing a blank, but there's different things that can kind of relax it. Um, I think caffeine might maybe, Yeah, I don't know. And if you think about it, the people who get dietary advice for GERD, right? not many, but when they are given the little one-page handout by their GI doctor or whatever, it's usually to avoid the acidic foods, right? which all happen to be on the list that you just rattled off, like caffeine right. and chocolate right. and tomatoes. Alcohol is another vinegar. big one that can Al- re- Yeah, I think the only too. one that's not a like an acidic slash histamine kind of trigger would be peppermint or mint. Right. Um, I wonder if that's because it's so aromatic. I wonder if it's like the volatile oils kind of waft up and make the sphincter loosey goosey. I don't know, but mm-hmm. yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause I forgot about that too, that um, some foods and herbs would relax the sphincter. Uh, so like chewing gum chronically might, also mm. relax the sphincter because if you're constantly chewing mint gum or having breath mints or if you're drinking a bunch of peppermint tea or taking peppermint right. capsules for your IBS, that could right. do the same thing. So yeah, that totally good point. You want to maybe prime us a little bit on the stomach acid and the juices in the stomach and then that's Ooh. kind of where we'll wrap it up. Do you like that, by the way? The little like thing. Juices. I, if you're not on YouTube right now, you're missing out. I don't know what this is. <laughs> <It's the same. laughs> yeah i think the stomach's just such like an interesting organ um but with the stomach there's again similar to the the mouth there's mechanical breakdown because the stomach actually churns so it mechanically churns which helps enhance digestion um and then again there's obviously chemical breakdown with stomach acid hcl and then with pepsin that are released when you eat protein. So the stomach's super critical for protein digestion. Um, Digestion of alcohol actually happens in the stomach as well. So that's why if you are like an alcohol, if if you abuse alcohol or drink a lot of alcohol, especially on an empty stomach, it can kind of give you a stomachache or cause bigger problems like gastritis if you're kind of a bigger drinker. Um, So that's kind of some of the digestive capacity things. But it's also really critical for digesting certain micronutrients like iron, zinc, B12. Um, yep. And then, think you know. Magnesium and calcium to an extent too. Yeah. Right? Yeah, certainly I, again. I think, I think PPI use is associated with deficiency of right. calcium and magnesium too. It's kind of, if you want an idea of like what nutrients require acid to be broken down, look up nutrient deficiencies as a side effect of PPIs. And you'll see, actually, I usually have a little book that's handy that I could pull, but I don't see it right now. It's might be on my other bookshelf. Um, 
But that's always kind of a fun and horrifying one to explore is like what nutrients the PPIs start messing with. Right. It's most of them. Well, and again, I think too, like, because it has such a pH effect, both in the gut or in the stomach and downstream, even if it's Mm -hmm. not necessarily directly related to stomach acid, if it's affecting pH downstream, which then affects enzyme release and other things downstream, like it could also be like, you know, with certain nutrients, kind of a secondary effect in a weird way. But Mm. yeah, I mean, I think that that the stomach, again, has all those functions. And then as the acidic um, bolus kind of leaves the stomach, like the, the, the chyme, the like ball of just acid and food is called chyme mm-hmm. after it's been churned. It leaves the, yep. the stomach. And again, it's super acidic when it leaves the stomach. And that's really important for downstream digestion. It help, it mm-hmm. It causes the release of different things that basically stimulate enzyme release and bile flow. So again, that's why stomach acidity is so important, not just not just for the breakdown of nutrients up top, but it affects everything downstream. And that's kind of one just key point yeah. of everything we're talking about. Like if the brain doesn't fire, it's going to affect everything downstream. If the mouth, you don't chew enough or take some time to eat your food, it's going to affect everything downstream. And I think like the same yeah. thing goes with the stomach piece. It's like if there's not enough stomach acidity um, or again, like there's breakdowns in the stomach, even if you're having kind of irritation there or other kind of problems, infection there, it could lead to way bigger issues downstream too. Yeah. Yeah. And really like it's a genius system. It's a little bit annoying when it gets all out of whack, (laughs) admittedly. And it is, it's a little bit annoying that we have to focus on our food and like feel safe enough to eat. Um, Uh, But a lot of it makes sense from a physiologic standpoint. And, you know, like, like you had mentioned, when the acidic bolus of food leaves the stomach, you would think, oh my God, like that's a terrible idea to squeeze out this acidic chyme into the poor unprotected intestines. Cause like it doesn't have the same level of protection as the stomach, but that's exactly the point is you have this stuff that's, you know, pH of what three plus or minus a little bit. So it's really, really acidic and you dump it into the poor unprotected wussy small intestine tissue. And what happens is the gallbladder and the pancreas know damn well that that is a lot of acid and that is not safe to keep around in the small bowel for a prolonged period of time. So they release bicarbonate, which Mm -hmm. neutralizes the acid in addition to their own digestive juices. So that neutralizes the acid. And it also is it, it's this perfect system of like, oh, if I wanted stomach acid to be first, and then these two juices to be second, how could I trigger it? Oh, like wrap it all up with the bicarbonate so that if the body wants to neutralize the acid, it has no choice but to secrete the bile and enzymes too. But the problem is when you have low stomach acid, whether it's because of PPIs or something else, the problem is then you you don't get the release of the other two juices. Right, right. That's why it's such a big deal. That's why it's so foundational. 
Like if you don't have enough stomach acid and the pH of the stuff getting into the small intestine is like five or six and it's closer to neutral, then your gallbladder and your pancreas only get a weak signal right? and they only send out a small amount of juices to neutralize that acid. Cause like, why would they squirt out a whole ton of bicarbonate just to shoot the pH up to 10? Like that wouldn't make sense. It's trying to neutralize it and get it closer. I think, I think it gets closer to like six ish right. in the small intestine, something like that. Like it's, it's closer to neutral. Um, but like, why would those body parts work extra hard and then F up the pH and make it too alkaline? Like that's not the goal. Right. So if you want, if you want to have adequate enzyme release and bile release, you really, 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 really need the bolus of food to be acidic enough. If the pH coming out of the stomach is not correct, then everything else goes off, off the rails. Right. Right. Yeah. And again, like, I think that like, in terms of doing things that are going to fortify acidity in the stomach, again, all the things we've already talked about, because like we said, it's like a, it's like a cascade. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think if you have um, any sort of like, irritation in the stomach could kind of throw off levels, or again, like sometimes they're, they're being driven by things like histamine issues. Mm-hmm. But I definitely H. think right H pylori can kind of lower stomach acidity, um, iron deficiency as right. we learned from Thomas. Alcohol again, I'd remove mm-hmm. from the from the diet if you're dealing with anything stomach related, at least for a period of time. Yep. Um, but yeah, again, I think it's it's primarily uh, working on that kind of stuff, and and then again, like getting enough nutrition totally. Um, Mm-hmm. is more going to be more so important. Like it, we've learned over time a million times. I'll bring it up a million times. I don't care. But like even Kaylee, when she was on, if you are metabolically yep. depleted, like you're not going to be digesting properly. So yeah. if you aren't getting enough nutrition, your digestion is like one of the first systems to go. Reproduction's mm-hmm. another one. So like if that's why you lose a period, if you're not getting enough to yep. eat. So you know, your body's going to use the resources in different ways and digestion isn't necessarily an, an, a required system if your body feels like it's being chased by a bear. Kind of a similar scenario yeah. of like, you know, digestion's going to be a uh, going to be one of the first systems to go just because it's non-essential right in the moment. Um, yeah. But again, clearly but it's your very body point. thinks the stress is going to be temporary. Right, right. Right. Like your body believes that the stressor is only going to be chasing you for a couple of minutes and then you're either going to die right. or you're going to live. Right. End of end of options. Right, right, right. Um but yeah, when we get into these situations with chronic ongoing stress and chronic ongoing digestive insufficiency and rushing through our meals, it's we can kind of start seeing why things go off the rails as much as they do. Um, and, and, you know, and I'll, I'll throw this out there too. Like you could certainly take betaine HCL mm-hmm. for fortifying your stomach acid and it does help. It does work. Right. But I think a lot of people at least are hoping to get to the root cause of the root cause of the root cause. Right. And you're hoping to not spend time and money and effort on a million pills for the rest of your life. So if you want to do the really root causal kind of stuff, then focus on the stuff we talked about in this episode. Um, 
you know, if you kind of want to, if you're in, in the place where you're like, I just want to feel better right now, right. for God's sake, I've been so sick for so long, I just want to feel better, then that's where I'd be more entertaining the thought of doing a little bit of betaine HCL, right. increasing the dose very gradually. Um, I don't know if I told you this. So I uh, sometimes I'll like look at, at YouTube videos about health related stuff. And I saw at least a time or two in recent months, um, there's this guy named Dr. Berg. Mm -hmm. He's a big like keto intermittent fasting kind of guy. He's got like a gazillion followers on YouTube. And I was checking out some of his videos not that long ago. And he said, I kid you not, that yeah, you need stomach acid to digest this. And uh, just take five betaine HCL capsules and you'll be good. And I was like, oh, (laughs) oh my God. Like how... Is he okay with this? Right. Oh, God. Like, and I commented on the video because I was like, please, for love of God, do not just take 5-betaine-HCL capsules. You've got to start more gradually than that. Right, right. For a normal person, that would be fine, probably. But like, for anybody who has even a touch of gastritis, oh, you like, you could really injure somebody with that advice. Right. And I was very, very shocked and and put off that he said nonchalantly, yeah, just take five betaine HCL capsules. Like, no, that is not how you do it. You start at a really low dose. You gradually increase while you're observing your symptoms. If you get to a point where you get some reflux or some burning or some warmth, you got to back down and you go back down to the lowest dose that you're able to tolerate. But um, it, it is helpful. It's just, it's a little bit of a Band-Aid situation. Right. Um Again, but it is helpful. So I thought I would mention that too. Is like yeah. you could use betaine HCL for a bit or indefinitely for sure. if you want to. But I think getting to the root cause is more important though. Right. And I also think too, like um, potentially working on getting, again, from a nutrition side of things to not just getting enough calories, but getting enough protein, I think mm-hmm. it can help stimulate stomach acidity nicely as well too. Like I always crack up a little bit with like the what is it what's it called now I'm I'm blanking where you eat like certain things at different times like you don't mix fruit with meat or what is what is that called I'm just picturing like a rotation diet but I don't know if that's no, what you're getting called at like I'm like having pregnancy I know I've brain, heard but I'm not pregnant anymore <laughs> um like oh, what is it called dear is it like meal spacing? I, I don't know. I don't remember what it's called, but it's it's like essentially I know what you're where, talking about though. Where like you 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 only eat meat with vegetables. You can't eat any starches with the meat. Like you can't eat like there's all these weird rules. M- meal food combining. Food combining. Okay. Have yeah, you yeah. seen that before? I know um yes, a little bit. I know it's it's somewhat prominent in Ayurveda mm. and their like nutritional kind of philosophy of like you only eat fruit by itself right? with nothing right. else, which is very counterintuitive to everything we know about blood sugar, by the way. Right, right. Um, well, but yeah. Well, and I even think from like a stomach digestion standpoint, like you probably wouldn't, like everything is going into the same bolus. Like, mm-hmm. and if you're not eating protein with like a carb, it could affect how the carbs digested. I don't know. It's just so strange. I, I don't think there's any, there's super hard evidence 
to to do that. Mm -hmm. And again, you're probably better off eating protein with with things like starches and and combining things with the protein because I think it'll help your digestion by increasing acidity. But that's a question I've gotten yeah. from a few people is like, oh, I I do food combining rules where it's like it's strange. You should look it up. It's kind of like I'm pretty sure they only eat meat with plant, like with vegetables. So no, like meat yeah. with fruit or meat with starches. Um, it's. I feel like this is getting into like disordered eating kind of stuff. Right, right, right. right. Where it's like you're making all of these rules that you have to follow. Um, right. I feel like, for me personally, where I've landed after all these years is I try to get a little bit of everything with each meal. So I try to get a bit of fat, a bit of carbs, a bit of fiber, a bit of protein at each meal. Um, But I don't obsess about it. So like if I am, you know, if if we go apple picking and I want to eat an apple, I'm not going to freak out because I don't have protein and fat and to go with it. Right. Like I'm just going to enjoy the apple or like when we go grape picking, I'm just going to stuff my face with grapes in the car ride on the way home because they're so good and they're so fresh. Like I'm not going to obsess over, oh, but I need to start the meal with protein and fat and like this is going to do X, Y, and Z. So I think it's like, but when I'm at home or even if I'm at a restaurant, like I try to combine everything together and I try to like start with the protein and the fiber and then, um, and I guess the fat too. And then I try to do the carbs and the sugar later in the meal yeah um i've been kind of into the glucose goddess on instagram have you followed her no or have you seen her oh she's so good and she has like a million followers so she's kind of a big deal apparently but she has a book which i have not read but yeah she goes by glucose goddess and she has all of these really really great like uh images that she made, basically she does a lot of CGM stuff and she shows like, this is what your blood sugar spike looks like when you have sushi. This is what your blood sugar spike looks like when you eat a salad first and then you eat the same amount of sushi. And it's like way blunted when you start with more fiber and then you follow it with carbs. It's fantastic. I love her stuff. Um, So I, I've been a little bit more mindful to do that in recent months where I'm like, oh, yeah, like that's, I kind of knew it anyway, but it's nice to be reminded of the importance of that and like lessening the blood sugar spikes by putting the carbs at the back end of the meal. So I've been a little bit more mindful of that. Cool. Um, yeah, but we need to get you out of here, my lady, my dear. <sighs> yeah, I got to relieve. it is. Got to relieve grandpa from watching Miss Cecilia. <laughs> yes, she'll, she'll be wanting her mom, I'm sure. Um, go give Chip a kiss on the nose for me. Tell him he's the best big brother ever, which right, he should we'll know. Strap in because you part should tell two. him every day. That's right. Yes. Yep. We will see you guys for part two, where we're going to pick up the conversation with that acidic bolus of food that just exited the stomach, and we'll talk a bit more about the pancreas and the gallbladder and their juices, and then we'll get into the intestines, and finally the grand finale, the colon. Uh, as always, you know, the deal, if you can leave us a nice five-star review on Apple podcasts, that would be super fabulous. And if you're on YouTube, drop us a comment. We might look at them someday. I don't know. Like, we might, we might, we're trying to get there. Um, and you know, like the video, subscribe, etc. And we will see you back here 
for season two of the IBS Freedom Podcast. This has been Nikki and Amy, over and out.